turn to Matthew chapter 7. Finally finished Matthew chapter 6, and we're entering the third chapter of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. This is the final chapter of this particular sermon. And uh, in the section of Scripture we'll be studying this morning is what some people tell me is the, the most popular verse in America now. Uh, for many, many years, the most popular, well-known, and most quoted verse would be in the book of John, uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. But sometime in the last generation, uh, the first verse that we'll be reading this morning, Matthew chapter 7 and verse 1, became the most popular verse or the most, most quoted verse and well-beloved verse. And I think you'll, you'll recognize it when you see it. But we're going to read this section this morning and just ask God to show us what, what it means and apply it to our, our lives this morning. Let's, let's read this. I'll read for you Matthew chapter 7, reading verse 1, and I'll be reading verse 1 through 6. Judge not that ye be not judged. For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged, and with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. And why beholdest thou the meat, uh, I'm sorry, the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, let me pull out the mote out of thine eye, and behold, a beam is in thine own eye? Thou hypocrite. First cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. Give not that which is holy unto the dogs, neither cast ye your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn again and rend you. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we pray this morning that you would open your word. We pray that you would help us to allow your word to speak to us in ways that sometimes make us uncomfortable because we need to be transformed by your word. I pray that you would do that for us this morning in a, in a very powerful and real way. And we'll be thankful to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm sure if I asked you all to raise your hands, most of you would be able to raise a hand if you say, have you heard somebody quote that verse or part of that verse? Just judge not that you be not judged. Uh, anytime that we're afraid somebody's going to start uh, making moral distinctions or calling some behavior wrong and some behavior right, uh, someone is going to pipe up with, but judge not. Uh, an, a variation on that, something I heard someone say some time back, who am I to judge, right? Who am I to judge? And some people can use this verse in a way that kind of sounds like we're not supposed to make any moral distinctions. We're just supposed to uh, live life with complete tolerance for everyone and everybody and not judge. But most of the people that say that, in fact, I would say everyone that says that because the way God has wired us up, no one lives that way. Everyone here, um, God has made us with an ability to make moral distinct distinctions and actually, we desire to. We, we want to make moral distinctions. We're, uh, as Chesterton says, the human mind is a machine for coming to conclusions. And so we, we want to look at the world 
and see black and white. We want to be able to see shades of gray. We want to be able to make moral judgments. And so all of us here today are going to judge in one way or another. And so it's important for us to understand what is Jesus talking about here? Is it a fact that we try to make moral judgments and distinctions? Is that a sin? Is that wrong? Well, if Jesus is condemning all moral judgments, it would be a strange thing for him to say two-thirds of the way through a sermon where he's been making a lot of moral judgments already. Uh, This is part of the same sermon that in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. That sounds very judgmental to me. You shall not commit adultery. But Jesus says, actually, they weren't judging rightly. That That wasn't judging well enough because actually it's not just adultery that has to be avoided, but all lustful thoughts. And if a man thinks lustful thoughts, it's as if he's already committed adultery with her in his heart. Wow, Jesus, you're so inconsistent because you say in Matthew 7, 1, don't judge. And and in chapter 5, it seems like you're talking in a very judgmental tone that makes me very uncomfortable. Isn't it strange how selective we can be with what we want to hear Jesus talk about and what we don't want to hear him talk about? So somebody's very quick to turn to 7-1 when it agrees with them or when they're afraid that somebody's going to judge them. And they say, whoa, 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 judge not that you be not judged. But if you turn around and say, the same book that said that also said, he that sins is of the devil, the devil sinned from the beginning. Like, whoa, you sound very judgmental. So we have to understand that Jesus is making a judgment right here about what kind of judging we should and should not be doing. So instead of us deciding to apply this willy-nilly around us, why don't we come to his word and try to understand what it's saying to us? Because I don't think any of us want to live in a world where judgment doesn't happen. What do I mean by that? I mean that all of us have a moral framework for things that we think should and should not be acceptable. And none of us want to live in a world where nobody ever gets in trouble for anything, right? None of us want to live in a world that looks like that. So the question is whether all of us get to be our own little judges and decide what is and isn't okay or whether we're going to submit submit our judgments to a greater judge. That's really the question. So let's look at Jesus' words here and what he says in its entirety, not just lift out one little verse, judge not that you be not judged. This is the same one that later says judge with righteous judgment. That's a verse that's in this same book. And I believe that's what Jesus is really driving at here. Jesus begins by saying, judge not that you be not judged because however you judge, you'll be judged yourself. I think there's two meanings here. First of all, we understand that there's a social principle that when people are very strict in the way they judge others about something, the people around them turn that same standard back on them, right? None of us like someone that calls out other people for lying and deception, and yet they're a liar. Nobody feels good about that. When you see someone that can notice everyone else's lack of truth, and yet they themselves are liars. And so Jesus is giving the social principle here that means however you judge others, you're going to be judged yourself. 
I don't know about you, but I don't like it when people wrongly judge my motives or try to pretend to be able to look inside my heart and they say, I I have one person that they've said to me multiple times, one of the most frustrating things they'll say is, they'll make some comment and they'll say, well, I know what you're going to say. And then they'll quote it. And I, I, sometimes I want to say, well, why don't you wait and find out what I say? (laughs) Instead of putting words in my mouth, why don't you just wait? Anybody here that you like that when people do that, when people think they already know what you're going to say, or they already know what you're thinking, or they already know how you feel? That is one of the most irritating, frustrating things when people try to impose, because what you want to say is, no, you're probably just saying what you would think if you were in my shoes, and I'm not you, and you're not me, so why don't you just judge me a little less harshly, and hear me out, and listen to me, and not try to look down inside my heart. So when Jesus says, however you judge others, that's how you be judged yourself, what he's giving us is a principle for social peace and cohesion that says, if you want to be treated with mercy instead of judgment, be a person of mercy. If you want others not to wrongly judge your motives without knowing you, then don't judge other people's motives without knowing them. Don't pretend to be God where you can look down inside people's hearts and know exactly what they're thinking and feeling because you would never want someone to treat you that way. I believe he's actually pointing to an even deeper principle beyond just the social principle that people tend to treat us the way we treat them. I know it's not true across the board, but I've recognized that people that are full of mercy and goodness and kindness, many times life tends to treat them that way. People around them treat them with kindness and courtesy and consideration. But I believe God is also telling us that when we treat others with a censorious spirit and with a judgmental attitude, God looks at us with stricter judgment as well. It's not just the way others treat us, but God himself says to us, you want, to, you want that standard of judgment to be imposed? Fine, I'll use that standard on you as well. What would your life look like? What would judgment look like for you if when you stood before God, you found out to your embarrassment that all your life God had been listening to all your judgments that you'd pronounced on everybody around you, and God said, tell you what, Martin, for now we're not going to even use my book that I wrote that has correct and righteous judgments in it. I'm just going to play back all the judgmental statements you've made all your life, and I want to see if you live up to them. Oh, man. You know, I've had those moments when I have thought poorly of someone, a thought goes through your mind, and then all of a sudden you say, well, I've done the exact same thing, and I thought it was okay when I did it. Maybe they're not meaning it the way it sounds, or maybe they're not intending to come across the way they, maybe they're not even thinking at all. And so Jesus is warning us not to never make any judgments at all, but to judge with mercy knowing that we'll be judged in that same way, to recognize that we sit under the law and we're not judges of the law. And Jesus is warning us that the way that we'll judge others is how we're judged ourselves. Scott McKnight says about this passage that as we walk with God, we need to learn the difference between making moral distinctions and casting personal condemnation. Do you understand what I'm saying? There's a difference between looking at life and saying, I recognize that some things are wrong and some things are right, and that's the way it is. 
God made us with a, with a mind that's able to grasp and a conscience that is able to understand, and he's given us a word that's infallible and errant, and it teaches us right from wrong. In the book of Ezra, as God begins to gather his people back from exile, he tells, I'm sorry, Ezekiel, he tells Ezekiel of these exiled people that have returned, he said, I'm going to send them judges and priests, and these priests are going to teach my people the difference between the holy and the profane and cause them to discern between the clean and the unclean. That sounds like judgment to me, but it's judgment that's mingled with mercy. It's not about a moral condemnation. It's a judgment that recognizes a distinction between sinful people and the sins that they're committing. All of us want to be treated with mercy and compassion. And yet, it's, sometimes it's a little more difficult to treat others with that kind of mercy and compassion. So I believe the first the first thing here is recognizing, the first thing that Jesus is driving at is recognizing that, that this ethic that he's given us is not, a, is not a way to feel better than others so that we get to condemn them. That's not what he's speaking of. And recognizing that whatever standard we impose on others is going to be imposed on us as well. But I believe the principle that Jesus is also bringing to us that we need to grasp here is that I don't... I don't understand why we would want to get to make our own judgments on our own. Because I'm afraid that some of us, it even infects our language, that we decide to become the, the yardstick for everyone's behavior. How often do we hear a statement like this? Well, they're doing it, but uh, I don't see how that's okay. I think that's... well. There's a difference between saying God's word says this is wrong and saying something in my heart makes me feel like that's wrong. Did you know God gives you a conscience for a reason? And it's, it's there to help guide us and to teach us, but it is not infallible. And when we begin to look to ourselves for our own standard of judgment... That's when we begin to fragment as a society and culture because everybody has different standards of behavior. Everyone says, it's fine for you to look at yourself and say, I know that I cannot do this. It's it's wrong to do this. It's a whole different story apart from any instruction of God's word for me to say, I get to decide what's right and wrong. The funny thing is, one of the things that we've decided is so wrong is judging anybody else. So the only thing that's, that's wrong is to say that something's wrong. But we recognize that's not livable. And so what we begin to do is we begin to acquire our own set of morals rooted in ourselves, in our own sense of, it's rooted in our subjective sense of right and wrong. Are you following me? We find a whole book of the Bible dedicated to that kind of attitude. Did you know there's a, there's a book of the Bible written that describes people that live that way? It's the book of Judges. In the closing chapters of the book of Judges, Four different times this statement is made about the people. It says, and in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It's strange because that phrase, what was right in their own eyes, kind of echoes the sound of Eve in the Garden of Eden looking at the fruit. Remember, she saw that the fruit was good in her eyes. And the people now in in Judges are doing whatever they think is good in their own eyes. And the terrible results that flow out of that subjective and self-centered ethic 
is the fact that some of them think it's good in their own eyes to behave uh, like perverts uh, and, and twisted, demented individuals so that at, at one point in the book of Judges, the men in a city of Israel are behaving exactly like the men of Sodom and Gomorrah, and they're wanting to, to, uh, to violate people in a, in a sexual assault. It's this, this, this brutal, horrible scene, and they act that out. They're doing, what are they doing? They're doing what they think is right in their own eyes. Later on, somebody decides what's right in their own eyes is to make an idol for themselves and then, and then pray to that and use that as, as their deity. They're doing what's right in their own eyes. And over and over again, this, this cadence comes through. Everyone does what's right in their own eyes. And Jesus here is warning about that. How do we know that's part of what Jesus is driving at? Well, because of the illustration that he uses. He says... Whatever, however you judge, others will judge you. Don't judge so that you're not judged harshly. But look in verse 3. He said, why are you looking at the speck, the little dust mite in your brother's eye, and you're unable to see the giant beam in your own eye? It's the idea of like a little tiny piece of sawdust in one guy's eye. And the, this fellow's like, you have a piece of dust in your eye. And sticking out of his eye is this giant steel girder, like jammed out of his eye. And, uh, and Jesus is saying, why are you doing this? In other words, you are imposing your own moral vision on the world while you yourself are profoundly flawed. Right? He's saying... Your own vision is clouded by sin, and so it's natural that everywhere you look, you see the sin in other people, because really there's something deep down inside yourself that's unaccounted for, that you haven't taken care of. You're profoundly sinful, and yet you think you'll be able to judge others? I thought about this, this, uh, the idea of judging others, not just judging behavior patterns, not just judging right from wrong based on the standards of God's word, but judging other people. And we're fortunate to live in a nation of laws and institutions instead of just power being invested in individuals. Imagine a scenario with me that we're driving down uh, uh, a street in Washington, D.C., and a car ahead of us pulls out, um, not using their signal, and we try to stop, honk our horn, swerve a little bit, and end up clipping the side of that vehicle. And when the man steps out, we, we realize that it's Chief Justice John Roberts on his way to Supreme Court. That'd be kind of nerve-wracking, wouldn't it? Right at that moment, like of all the people I could hit, it has to be one of the men on the Supreme Court. But think how odd it would be if as he steps out, he looks over and says, You, go to jail, go directly to jail, do not pass go. You're like, what? What? But there's, there's, there's a world, moral world, where we envision we get to decide because we're the judge. And if we were to stop John Roberts and say, what, what are you doing? He says, I'm Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. I demand you go to jail for hitting my car. You're like, but, 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 but we're not in court. And you're not wearing your robes. And, and we haven't called court into session. And you don't just get to as... Because right now, you're not Chief Justice, you're just John Roberts. Some of us pretend like we're Chief Justice of the universe. 
and we get to call out everybody around us. Are you following me? We get to call it because we're chief justice and executor of the universe. And what Jesus is saying here is, no, you're not. No, you're not. It's, there's a difference between knowing right from wrong and getting to sit in judgment on everyone around you and save and condemn them. God is the, the, the one who distributes justice, the one who makes judgments. And unless we're in an office in which we're called upon to make judgments... That's not what God calls us to. That's not the role he calls us to. And at this moment, some people might be asking, Brother Martin, that sounds like a recipe for disaster in the church. If we can't make judgment calls about the church, how in the world can it even function? I understand you tell me out in the world that there are courts that are, that are there to determine right and wrong behavior and that are there to make judgments and condemn or or to exonerate, but what about in the church? Like, does that mean just any behavior goes and none of us can judge each other? No, we actually can, because we have something in the church, just like the United States has a court system, the church has a court system. It's in Matthew chapter 16, and some of us could read that chapter again and again and never actually see what Jesus is getting at. Um, Because Jesus talks to them about, I'm sorry, it's actually Matthew 18. In Matthew 16, Jesus gives them a key to the keys to the kingdom. But in Matthew 18 and verse 15, Jesus talks to them about what to do if there is sin in the church. He's describing how to do right judgment. He tells them all, don't judge lest you're judged. And now he says in, in Matthew chapter 18, he says, if your brother sins against you, If I decide someone in the church is doing something wrong, there's a very simple way to deal with it. I go to them and I say, brother, what you did was wrong. And if they hear you and say, you're right, I shouldn't have done that. I'm sorry, please forgive me. Jesus says, you've gained your brother. You're okay. Everything's everything's taken care of. Now, I, I don't know, but it doesn't seem like Jesus said... If your brother sins against you, then please go to everybody else in the church and tell them what he did. He just says, go to him privately. And if you do that and he hears you, you've gained your brother. But what if he doesn't listen to you? What if he doesn't hear you? Well, you bring two or three witnesses, this gets uncomfortable, and say, my brother did this to me. He hurt me. He wounded me. He did something wrong. I saw him doing something. I know it was wrong. And he didn't listen. He's not repenting. He's not willing to hear. Now, the reason why would you bring in two or three witnesses? Because it's not your job to judge all by yourself. So there's a disagreement now. Do you follow me? There's two brothers. One has done something wrong or one is at least accused of doing something wrong. And the other won't listen. So you bring two or three and the two or three say, you know what would happen? Sometimes they would say, you know what, Brother Martin, you're wrong. He didn't didn't wrong you. He's totally fine. You're asking for an apology for a nothing. You need to get over it. But sometimes those two or three are going to say, you know what, Martin, you're right. He did wrong you. He hurt you. And he needs to apologize. And if he won't hear those witnesses, who is he supposed to go to? It says he's to bring him before the church. It's in verse 17. Before the court. 
And in this session, it's not the same as when one brother comes to another. Now together, and if, if I had the time, I could just walk you through the New Testament, a passage after passage that refers to this, because I'm not, I'm not just pulling this out of thin air. If you've never heard of this before, and some of you are saying, I've never heard the, this in the Bible, it's here, and it's repeated in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul tells them to do the exact same thing that, he's at, that Jesus says for them to do right here in Matthew 18. He says, bring them before the entire church. Now, that would really lessen the number of times that we make a big deal out of nothing. Do you follow me? Because there's some things that just need to be forgotten about, just set aside. But what Jesus is talking about here is when one person has genuinely and deeply wronged the other person, then they're brought before the house of God. If they're both a part of the church, you understand, this is for believers. This is those, for those who have, who have joined themselves into covenant community with the people of God. And the story's heard. And the person either repents or they turn away. And they walk away from that covenant community. But do you see how no individual person gets the right to judge the other and condemn the other by themselves? Do you follow me? Just like the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, John Roberts, the most powerful man in our entire judicial system, does not get to make judgment calls all by himself. It is always done in the context of court. That's a little bit of a side note, but I wanted you to see that so you understand the way in which the church enforces the moral distinctions and strictures that the scripture gives us. But now we return to what Jesus is saying when he says the moat and the beam. He's referring to somebody whose vision is deeply skewed by their own sinfulness. They haven't sat under judgment by the word of God. Instead, they think they are the judge. And Jesus says, what are you trying to do? You're not going to be able to see clearly. This beam is sticking out of your eye. And there's, there is layers of truth embedded in this metaphor that Jesus gives us. By comparing sin to a speck in the eye. Remember the last time that Jesus talked about eye, it was just a few verses ago. Just two weeks ago, we talked about Jesus when he talked about the good eye and the evil eye. Remember that? The generous eye and the evil eye. And he said that, that our eyes and our vision is going to be affect, it's going to affect everything about us. That whether we're able to see clearly or not is going to, to, to affect us deeply. And now, Jesus makes a, a connection where he says it's not only about that generous spirit or the envious and greedy spirit that looks to everyone else and wants their stuff, but now he connects it to our ability to rightly judge. And this is what he says. He's saying to us, just like if I have something in my eye, I'm going to be the last person on earth that you want to have come try to get something out of your eye. Because it doesn't matter how small it is, it's going to really cloud my vision. This is something that's happened in the history of the church and among theologians. There's a very, very famous theologian, possibly the most famous theologian of the last hundred years, a man named Karl Barth. Uh, he's not a man that would be commonly spoken of from the pulpit just because he's kind of the kind of guy that came up with a lot of, um, of the frameworks and, and structures that we understand Scripture through. So, so Many people use him to study the Scripture. And yet there were some really glaring weaknesses in his writings. 
And then the story has begun to unfold after his death. He's long since passed away. That this was a man who spent years in an immoral affair and almost destroyed his family over that. Now, let me ask you a question. If somebody is living in, in sin, open and known sin in their own life, don't you think that that might make, them, uh, might make it a little difficult for them to rightly understand some scriptures? It might make them what we would call willfully blind. Because if they understand what it's saying, then it leaves they themselves condemned. In other words, here's a man trying to understand the scripture while this beam is sticking out of his own eye. He's trying to understand fine tenses of verbs and and to reach deeply into original text, and he's spiritually blinded by his own sin. But Jesus says to judge in the way he's forbidding here is to go around with, because you're not allowing anyone else to judge you, you're the judge, so you've got this giant beam in your own eye, and you're the one, you're the church spec inspector. You think you can go and get the specks out of everybody else's eye? Moral failure will radically affect our ability to see truth clearly. This is what Jesus is saying here. When, when we have sin in our lives, it skews our vision deeply. Now, Jesus did not say, all of you got specks in your eyes, so no one can do anything about it. Because listen to what he said. He finished by saying, remove the speck from your eye, and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye, right? He gives us instructions. He says, if you'll get the speck out of your eye, then you you know what you're able to do? You're able to help someone else. It is one of the most fulfilling things to have people step into your life and ministry that you realize there are ways that you might be able to help them. But the only way you'll be able to help them is if you've actually been helped yourself. If you're stuck in the same mess they're stuck in, you're not going to be able to help them. If your life is the exact same mess theirs is, you're not going to be able to help them. But if instead the presence and spirit and power of God have worked in your life and helped you to overcome some issues, then to the degree that you've overcome those issues, when you realize that your brother is caught up in those things, you're able to help. You're able to, to, to aid him in his pursuit of holiness. There's a lesson that is sitting beneath the surface of this text, but it it relates to how do we remove specks from our eyes? How how do you get the speck out of your eye? There's, There's two ways. If I get something in my eye, there's two ways to get it out. One thing is that I'm if I'm going to be able to reach in to get that out of my eye, if I don't have someone around to help me with it, I I need to use a mirror. Because I need to be able to see it. Depending on how bad the speck is and how clouded my own vision is, it may be that I'm able to go to a mirror and even though I'm irritated and even though my eyes are watering, I can reach in and with maybe a little tissue or something and I can find that speck and get it out. Do you know that the Word of God is referred to as a mirror? In the book of James, he says that someone who who reads and hears God's word and then refuses to obey it, is like a man that looks at himself in a mirror and then goes away and forgets what he's like. So the mirror of God's word helps us to be speck removers for ourselves. We're not intended to come to the word of God and read it and say, ooh, I know someone at the church that really needs that. 
As I was reading and studying for this, they pointed out that, that ministers, they've done studies and research on this, and they say that ministers tend to read the Bible as if they're God. It's kind of scary, isn't it? They read it, and they take the perspective of the one that's writing it, the apostle and ultimately God, like, oh, yes, that's what I should say to my people. And it's so important for me when I read God's word to realize it's applied to me. It's a mirror that I look into for my own spiritual transformation. And this mirror of God's word helps me to remove the specks from my eye. That's one one way to get the speck out of our eye. But there's another way to, to remove the speck. And that's to cry. Tears will help us remove specks and dust and dirt from our eyes. There is nothing quite like a a speck remover who's unrepentant. Someone who has never experienced deep sorrow or, or repentance for their own sin, but they're able to go to everybody else and try to get the speck out of their eye. Doesn't it make a difference in how tenderly and how carefully we pull the speck out of our brother's eye when we've had one in our own eye and we know how much it hurts? You don't treat it the same way, do you? Now, if I've never known what it's like to have a speck in my eye, I can jam and jab and poke and prod to try to pull that speck out of their eye. And I may not realize that whole time that my eyes are blinded. And I've never really wept for my own brokenness and the areas of failure in my own life. But when I have really deeply wrestled with my own failures... And I have repented such that it has begun to clear my vision spiritually. Is there anything more, more wonderful than the feeling you've had a speck, a big piece of sawdust or something, and it's gotten deep in your eye, and your eyes have been pouring with tears for 5, 10, 15 minutes. There's no feeling quite like the relief when you reach up and you pull down, and there it is, right? It's gone. It's not in your eye anymore. You've been able to remove that speck from your eye and your vision begins to clear and the tears begin to dry and it's just this huge sense of relief. You know it's gone. It's not there. In your life spiritually, every one of us are born not only with a speck in our eye. The scripture says we're actually born spiritually blind, completely blind to to sin and, and righteousness and God and his word. Our eyes are spiritually blind. And the Spirit of God has to come and open our eyes. That happens in the life of of Saul, the apostle, who later becomes Paul. Saul, on the road to Damascus, has this brilliant light flash from heaven. A voice speaks to him and says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul falls to the ground. He cries out, says, who are you, Lord? And, And God speaks to him and says, I'm Jesus, the one that you're persecuting. Saul turns from that persecution and he's completely blinded, physically blinded. But there's this truth that's embedded here in the text and that's that Paul is spiritually blind, but he, I'm sorry, he's physically blinded, but now for the first time in his life, he's spiritually able to see. He's seen what's been there all along. He's able to see Jesus clearly. And three days later in the house of of Annas on Straight Street, a man comes and lays his hands on his eyes and it says that something fell from his eyes like fish scales. It's like he has thick, 
built up cataracts and they're finally gone. He's been, his eyes have been spiritually opened. And it was only after that experience that Paul is able to begin to help others. Jesus said, remove first the beam from your own eye and then you'll be able to see clearly the speck that's in your brother's eye. I want you to be able to help me. I want to be able to help you. But if we're going to be able to help one another, we can't have our own individual moral standards that are accountable only to ourselves. We have to delete from our category, delete from our vocabulary. Only God can judge me. It's true. Someday God will judge you. But in the meantime, don't you wish there was somebody walking alongside you that could help you? Not to judge, but to help us make moral distinctions on the basis of God's word. We need together as a church to make those moral distinctions. To hold one another accountable to God's word. In love and compassion. Not in a harsh, censorious spirit, but in love and compassion. We need to weep over our own failures before we ever try to help anyone else. We need to be certain that we've actually overcome spiritual failure in our lives before we help someone else. It's not enough just to try to do a little better. We have to genuinely repent and turn from sin and errors in our lives before we're going to be able to help anybody else. And Jesus ends this little, this, this little uh, um, message on judgment and specks and beams by saying, don't cast your pearls before swine. Don't give sacred things to the dogs. They'll trample them under feet and they'll turn again and rend you. And I think what Jesus is saying here, there's a lot of discussion about exactly what he's getting at because it feels almost random and out of place. But if you take that Jesus is beginning by saying, don't judge that, you, that you're not judged, and whatever, whatever way in which you judge, others will judge you. But then he ends by saying, Cast the beam from your eye and then begin to help your brother to remove the speck from his eye. It would seem to me that Jesus is warning us that there are some people that we shouldn't try to help. Right? All of us probably know some people that they would insist, I'm not judgmental, I'm not a, but yet they seem to distribute their opinions everywhere they go. And sometimes you just want to stop and say, you know, to be honest, probably... If somebody's not interested, if somebody wants your opinion, they'll ask. And so Jesus is saying, these words are for my covenant community. And there's no reason to waste your time trying to judge everybody else. There's something that makes me really uncomfortable in the world today that we're dealing with. And that's that there is a class, a political class that are really involved in... uh, religion and political activism at the same time. And you can depend on them that if anybody begins running for office that they don't agree with, that they'll make sure they take the time to condemn them. And oftentimes their condemnation, the statement that they're making, I agree with it. I I agree with them. I just think there's sometimes when stuff's none of your business. And what I mean by that is, I don't mean it's none of your business as in Uh, that it doesn't affect your moral perspective and that you are not free in your heart and in your your relationships to say, "I, I believe that person's wrong. What they're doing is wrong. But what I mean is this, that there comes a point where the church is much more interested in judging everybody outside the church than they are with judging the people inside the church. 
And I, I wish I had the time to walk you through, and maybe if we, as we sit around the, the table uh, and eat together in just a few minutes, we can do that. Turn to some of the scriptures where Paul warns them about that very thing. He said, the job of you in the church is to judge the church. Judgment must begin at the house of God. And I'm much less worried. You know, I am a thousand times less worried about sin and evil and wickedness going on out there than I am if we allow any sin or wickedness in here. We're the people that are naming the name of Christ. We're professing to be transformed by the grace of God. And if we're not willing to turn the word of God and that mirror of his word on ourselves, instead we want to make sure that everybody outside... Am I crazy or am I, I think I'm right here. I think there's plenty of places and people where you can go to churches that are very intent on making sure they cast condemnation on everybody outside. There's a story I've told you all from this pulpit before. I've never forgotten. I was probably like 11 or 12 and I heard a preacher tell this story. And the, the longer I preach, the better it gets. I'm just like, this story perfectly sums up the attitude of us as believers too often. It's the story of a guy that's preaching at a, at a place um, that's, uh, it's, it's way down in, in the South, way down in Kentucky. And this is a place that's, that, um, he's, he's kind of preaching a revival sermon. He's really going to hit some things. And he gets up there. He said, today I'm going to preach about the evils of tobacco. And somebody pulls on his coat sleeve and says, uh, the deacon behind him says, sir, I said, I, I really wouldn't do that if I were you because our, our lead elder in this church raises tobacco for a living. So I wouldn't preach about that here. And he gets a little flustered. He said, well, I, 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 I guess then I'll preach about the evils of alcohol. And that same elder pulls his coat sleeve and says, sir, said, uh, we have another elder, actually two of them that run a still up in the mountains. So I wouldn't preach about that if I were you. And the preacher just kind of shakes his head a bit. He said, I, I guess I really don't know what to preach about. And uh, a lady in the back, a little old lady said, why don't you preach about cannibalism? There's not one of those in a thousand miles. Isn't that what we're tempted to do? To make sure that we direct our condemnations in such a way that nobody's there to hear them that needs them, right? We call it preaching to the choir. And what I want us to do as a church in our own lives and for me in my own ministry is, can we just apply God's word in a way that it actually speaks to us? There's going to be times where I read something or I preach something and it makes us uncomfortable. We go, I don't like that. That doesn't feel good. I need to find somebody else to preach it to so they can feel bad. I don't want to actually apply it to my own life. But Jesus' words here warn us about the dangers of the unexamined life, of walking through life with clear, open sin that everyone around us sees, and yet we don't. That's the strange thing about moral vision because when it becomes clouded... If, if there's a speck in my eye, you all couldn't tell except from the tears, right? But I would know. But moral vision is the opposite. When I have something clouding my vision morally, I'm the only one that doesn't see it. It's like a beam. It's sticking out and everybody's like, Brother Martin just has a really big blind spot. I need to clean up my own life before I try to reach into anyone else's to help them. And if I'll do that, I approach them with a completely different attitude. I approach them with an attitude of love and concern that wants to help them instead of simply feel better about myself. 
And then Jesus is giving that final warning where he says, don't go around distributing your advice to everybody. They may not appreciate it. In fact, they probably won't. Make sure that this aspect of of helping your brother is just happening with your brother. There's been some times where I've really been bothered by something that I saw on social media or I saw on the internet, and I really wanted to write to somebody and tell them to fix it. And then there's been times where God's walked up to me and said, you know, it's really not any of your business. It has nothing to do with you. Now, on the other hand, if I was on one of y'all's social media pages and I saw something, <laughs> I'm kind of half kidding there. What I actually mean is that, that help needs to co- occur in the context of relationship, right? Unless we get to know each other and know each other, we can't really help each other. But God can help us to judge, not to judge, but to care and to love and to reach into the lives of the people around us in a way that really does help instead of hurt. And ultimately, it moves forward the kingdom of God because we're applying not our own arbitrary standards, but the word of God, which we have first applied to ourselves. Jesus himself, as he distributed condemnation and made judgments because he is the judge, Never once could anyone turn to him. And at one point Jesus said this, which of you would condemn me of sin? That's why Jesus can stand before the woman caught in adultery and say, as he didn't have to walk away, but he says, I don't condemn you. Instead, I love you, but go and sin no more. Because Jesus had reached into her life to change it, to transform it through his grace. And if God can help us to be people of grace, we can work a transforming thing on the world around us. Because we're not about just condemning the people around us, but about loving and helping and transforming ourselves through God's grace and power. If I understand faith, it's not counting on me. It's the hope and assurance of what I can see. It's the daily relying on Jesus to be providing more grace faithfully, further proving his great love for me with grace for the moment, all that I need. Grace for the moment and faith to receive the promises given to those who believe. Grace for the moment, all that I need. The promises given to those who. Believe.